Okay, in this section, we're going to talk about some of the techniques we're going to use to increase motivation. So one of the first we're going to talk about is the use of restraint and frustration as tools in our training. We have a tendency to think of uh, frustration as a bad thing, and it can be. Uh, restraint and frustration can create a lot of behavioral problems in dogs. Your dog sitting behind a fence watching bicyclists go by or uh, running the fence with your neighbor's dog fence fighting. These are all examples of frustration turning into aggression and bad behavior frequently. Uh, so restraint and frustration we tend to think of as bad things, but we can use them to our advantage, especially increasing motivation. So we use harnesses and lines to hold dogs back. We do restrained recalls to the handler. We do restraint while we're teasing the dogs with toys. Uh, to increase their motivation for the toys, and a lot of these can be very useful techniques for building motivation. Uh, we're going to talk about hunger. Right? So when we're using food in training, all the initial uh, interest in the food is driven by the dog's hunger. So you have to have a hungry dog to use food in the beginning. Over time, that changes. Our, once our dog understands the food as an interactive reward and starts chasing it and it's more of a game between the handler and the dog, the dog is less than driven by their hunger drive and they, they may not need to be hungry at that point to work for food. But in the beginning, we're relying on their hunger. So many, many people um, overfeed their dogs, try to train with their dogs with uh, treats that aren't palatable or interesting, and we'll talk a bit about, uh, about that. Manipulating hunger drive, and then what kinds of treats and that sort of thing that we're gonna use to try to uh, make the most use of that hunger drive. We're gonna talk about social isolation and when and where we use it uh, to increase motivation. So social isolation is restricting the dog's access to you and certain activities. Uh, playing and things like that, so that you can build desire for those activities. Dogs that have constant access to you socially and have constant access to toys and food and things like that are significantly less motivated most of the time. So we have to uh, isolate the dogs to some degree. Now, if I start out with a highly motivated dog and I socially isolate them too much, I can create behavioral problems. So we're going to talk about where we want to do that. But the less motivated my dog, the more likely we are to have to socially isolate the dog to some degree to build motivation for the reward event. Uh, we're going to talk about patterning of arousal levels through classical conditioning. So we use this extensively in training. Patterning of arousal levels is simply uh, where does the dog learn that exciting things are going to happen? And we manipulate this to our advantage. I do not want my dog to think that exciting things are going to happen in my living room. That is not useful for me. That is annoying, right? But I want my dog to think exciting things are going to happen on a training field or in a training building or where, wherever I need my dog to perform that activity, on an agility course, uh, in the woods if I'm a, training a hunting dog, whatever. So we're patterning the dog's ideas and associations with certain types of places. And we use that to our advantage to develop motivation in specific situations and not have the dog uh, be a pest in other situations, as it were. We're going to talk about what types of activities intensify through rehearsal. So I mentioned it briefly in the last section, but for instance, if you're using hunger drive, that does not intensify through rehearsal. So if my dog's hungry and I feed him, the drive diminishes over time as he gets satiated. That is not the case with prey-based activities or chase activities. The more the dog rehearses them, the more intense they get. So we're going to use rehearsal to intensify a lot of these activities. The more I play with my dog, the more I play chase games, the more I play tug games, the more intense they tend to get about that.
part of that's a function of maturity and part of that's a function of rehearsal. The more they practice it, the more interesting it gets. Uh, we're going to talk about restricting or channeling energy use. So a lot of what we do in developing reward events is teach the dog where to put their energy. If I let a dog loose, the dog has energy for all kinds of activities. It might want to run around the backyard chasing birds, it might want to dig holes, it might want to chew up my shoes, it might want to wrestle with the other dogs, it might want to do all kinds of things. So what we do is we restrict or channel where they put their energy. I say, hey, hey, don't chase the birds, chase this toy that I have. Hey, hey, don't chew that shoe, play with this. I mean, don't play with the other dogs, play with me, whatever it is, right? And by channeling that energy, we teach them while they're learning where to put that energy, which intensifies the desire. We want them to put their energy into interacting with us instead of unproductive other activities. And sometimes we have to restrict their ability to rehearse other behaviors while we install new ones. Uh, we're going to talk about appropriate toys and treats, like what kinds of toys and treats are we going to use. So we'll lay a bunch out, we'll talk about uh, age-appropriate toys, uh, types of toys, and we're going to talk about what are generally functionally good training treats, how we hold them, what size should they be, all that basic stuff. Huh? Uh, then we're going to talk about violating the dog's expectations. Right? So here's a big part of uh, creating good solid reward events. So one of the reasons, people ask all the time, like, do you train with food and toys in the same session? And with some dogs, you absolutely can. There's definitely no problem if I have a, motiva a highly motivated dog. Some dogs switch back and forth between food and toys and other activities really well. So I can be using food, then I can play with them, I can go back and use food again. But for many dogs, this doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is there's a hierarchy of value in these reward activities for the dog. So let's say the dog likes food this much, likes chasing a ball this much, and likes playing tug this much, theoretically. They could all be juxtaposed and put in a different order. But let's say there's a hierarchy. And my dog comes out, and I start with the low value or lowest value reward. The dog's doing fine. Then I use a higher value reward. Now the dog says, ooh, I really like that. And then we try to go back to the lower one. But he's expecting the higher one. And when he's expecting the higher one and you try to give him the lower value reward, it's demotivating. You violated his expectations down the hierarchical scale. And that will actually have a negative effect on overall motivation. So for some dogs, we can't switch back and forth. The analogy I like to use is I told you I'd give you $100 to do a certain job. You showed up, you did the job, and I said, eh, that's not good enough, I'll give you 20 you're not likely going to want to work for me again. And it's the same with the dogs. Right? You can't violate their expectations down. Now, if my dog likes all the things roughly equally, then you may get away with switching back and forth. But so know your dog and don't violate their expectations down the hierarchical scale. If you're going to train with food, we usually train with food to avoid that happening. And if we're going to train with toys, we train with toys in separate sessions. It doesn't mean you can't do them in different sessions. But we'll talk a little bit about the hows and whys of that as well. Thank you.